From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Work is something that just about all of us do, and so like food and love and child rearing and sex and all these other human things, it's something that we have in common and something that we can talk about in common. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites. You name it, we got it. We look everywhere, and when we hear something great, we grab it, bring it home, and play it for you. Our ears are listening on every continent, and yours just have to listen to the radio. Work is also something that very literally in this day and age connects us because of the way the global economy is structured. So if you look around the room that you're in or the car that you're in, there are hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of people who are in there with you. They're the people who tapped the rubber to make the tires, to go on the truck that transported the cotton that was made in the textile factory and that becomes a pair of blue jeans or whatever. We are really very closely connected to thousands and thousands of people every minute of the day. Few people get by in this life without working. It's what most of us do for half our waking lives. And for some people, much more than that. It's how we feed our families, define ourselves, and contribute to the world. Almost everything we see and hold and use is the product of someone else's labor somewhere else in the world. We just don't often get to know these people. Today, on this Labor Day weekend, we do. We'll hear profiles from the Working series by Homelands Productions, and we'll talk with Jonathan Miller, the executive producer of the series. From a lobster diver in Honduras, to a chocolate taster in France, to a movie director in Nigeria, and beyond. These stories reveal the workaday world in all its globalized complexity, one person at a time. So, um, yeah, do you want me to launch into that uh, question about my own work? Jonathan Miller executive producer of the Working Series from Homelands Productions. Uh, when we set out to do this project about work, I, just for the fun of it, wrote a list of all the jobs that I'd had. I don't remember how many items there were, but they ranged from trail builder and firefighter and truck driver and roofer and house painter and carpenter's helper and uh, food service worker. I, I think it, there was a period in my life when I was collecting jobs and in each of those jobs had this little window into some world that I wouldn't have had uh, had I not had that job. So there is some continuity there for me. So then how did this series come about? I mean, how was it born? And, uh, you know, what was the impetus behind it? For me and for my colleagues at Homelands Productions, one of the most important things and most exciting things is to try to tell large stories through lots of small stories. And when when we came up with the idea of of work, let's focus on work. Let's focus on what people do all day. It just seemed like such a no-brainer, such an obvious thing. And then within that, it's like staring at a blank page because everybody works and there's so many millions of jobs in the world. I mean, how do you start narrowing it down as to what stories you want to tell? It's really a challenge to figure out 
what your final roster is going to be. We went in with this kind of vague notion of let's create a group portrait of the working world, which is something you can say pretty easily. I just did. But to actually start putting faces and people into that portrait is really tough. And so there's this kind of conceptual matrix that is floating around in my head for a couple of years where you're trying to balance all these different things. You want some of these people to be happy and some not to be so happy and some to be liberated by the work they do and some to be oppressed by the work they do. And you want them to be more or less evenly split between men and women and you want them to be geographically distributed. But beyond that, so much of it ends up being by chance. And and you go to interview somebody because you think that they've got a really interesting job or you go to interview someone because you know from somebody else that they're a really interesting person. Uh, and they don't fit. They don't fit the matrix somehow. And there's something frightening and wonderful about that, that folks do not conform to the preconceived notions that we have about them, you know. Agus Leodi, pirate. Location, Indonesia. Income, $0 to $2,000 per operation. Operations, six per year. Profile by Kelly McEvers. There's no soundtrack to August Laoti's life. Nothing swashbuckling about the way he slips his hands in his pockets and slouches when he walks into a hardware store. How much for this machete? If you were the shopkeeper, you might think Agus is a butcher or a fisherman. You'd have no idea it's his job to hold knives like this to the throats of ship captains and demand all their money. This knife costs about 10 bucks. Okay. Next stop okay. is a rickety wooden house on stilts, the house of a local magician. Agus sets a bottle of water on the floor and asks the magician to bless it. He's talking to the water. He's shaking it. He's putting it under his arm. He's breathing into the water. Camille. The magician says if Agus wipes the magic water on his face, it will make him invisible to the Indonesian Navy. He's already been questioned by the Navy once before, so Agus feels like he needs the extra protection. Agus says this is about all you need to be a pirate around here. Some crude weapons and a little magic. It's not like the movies. If it were like the movies, maybe Agus would like his job more. As it is, he says he's a pirate because he has no other choice. It's not a question of right or wrong for Agus. It's a question of survival. I want to stop. It's dangerous out at sea. People have accidents. People die. I have a dream that one day I will make so much money I can quit this work and stop everything. But until then, what else can I do? Agus grew up in a small Indonesian farming village more than a thousand miles from here. He made $7 a day raising cocoa. But that barely fed his parents, siblings, wife, and three kids. Then I met a man in my village who was successful. He owned a shop and his wife wore a lot of gold. I tried to stay close to him and ask him how he made so much money. After some time, he told me that he had been a pirate. The man in the village told Agus to come here, to a small island in the Strait of Malacca, and start working as a boat taxi driver. That way, he would meet pirates. So we are walking down the streets of the village where August lives. The sun has just gone down and we are preparing for an operation. August joined a pirate group about four years ago. Now he says he robs big international cargo ships about half a dozen times a year. 
The rest of the time, he robs houses. And now we are walking out on the um, sidewalk on stilts. You can just see the silhouettes of little wooden boats on the water. Agu says it's too dangerous to take me out with him to rob a ship. But he's promised to secretly record a future operation on his mobile phone. What's this? For now, he and the boys are showing me how it's done. It's the knife? The key, they say, is to go out on a night with little or no moon. That way, they can stay hidden from the Navy, which is out in full force these days. We climb into a low wooden canoe and head out toward the Strait of Malacca. This is one of the most heavily trafficked waterways in the world. You can see the big ships over there, though. There is Singapore. I could swim to it. We pull up to a light tower that's about 20 feet tall. That's less than half as high as a cargo ship would be. The plan is for Agus to climb the tower as if he were robbing it. The boys have fashioned a long bamboo stick. And then you put a hook on the end of it. And then you throw the stick up at the boat and hook it on. Dalam tujuh orang tadi ini, kita udah bagi bawa kamu jaga orang. We do it in a team of seven. We climb up the bamboo pole to the ship. Two of us go to the bridge to catch the captain. The others stay and guard the crew. Sometimes the captain fights back, so we have to hit him and tie him up with rope. Then we tell him to give us all the money in the safe. Agu says he only hits captains. But one Navy officer told me pirates sometimes cut off captains' hands if they don't cooperate. If Agus and his partners manage to steal the money from the safe, each one can clear about six or $700. Sometimes we fail and come home with no money, but we still have to pay for the fuel, so we end up in debt. The next day, Agus shows us the two rooms he rents for about $20 a month, and there's no furniture in here. And then in the other room, there's just a mattress on the floor and a fan, a little pink oscillating fan. The mosque is right across the street. Agus was raised a Muslim, but he doesn't pray very much these days. He says he feels guilty that he doesn't always have enough money to send home and that his wife is left to support the family. Now my wife has managed to work for herself and make good money as a nurse. Back in the village, this only brings Agus more shame. But I'm still doing this bad job and not making much money. For this reason, I feel ashamed. I cannot go back home with nothing, so I have to stay here. When Agus does make money, he doesn't always save it for the family. That's because after a successful operation, it's a tradition for pirates to celebrate with what they call happy happy, or booze and girls. This night, it's Agus's friend who's celebrating. He's just made a couple hundred bucks stealing crude from an oil tanker and reselling it. Tonight, the happy happy is a case of beer and a troop of disco girls who travel from island to island and charge men to dance with them. That's your, girl- that's your girlfriend right yeah, there. Yeah, okay. That's my girlfriend, the tall one. Her name is Yuna. Yeah. Pretty soon, Agus has spent his last five dollars to be with Yuna. He doesn't touch her. He just closes his eyes, throws his head back, and dances and dances. In the three days that I've known him, it's the first time I've seen Agus smile a real smile. I wave goodbye and take my final boat taxi away from the island. Since that night, Agus says he's been on two pirate operations. One was a success. He made nearly $1,000, a huge amount of money in Indonesia. The other was not. Too many Navy boats out that night. I called Agus a few times and asked about the recording he said he'd make on his mobile phone. 
and he kept promising to do it. The last time I talked to him, though, he admitted he had to pawn the phone because, he said, he was broke again. Agus Laoti, Pirate, by Kelly McEvers. I was inspired again and again by uh, one of our colleagues, Kelly McEvers, who did the pirate story. She worked so hard to get that guy, and uh, she basically parked herself on this little island where pirates were known to hang out and just met with everyone she could think of, journalists and law enforcement people and shady characters, and she just kept asking and asking and asking, and it took her three weeks to find the right guy. And she kept calling me and emailing me like, I think I might have somebody and here and then then he would fall through a day later. Um, We got a little bit of guff for including a couple of workers who did illegal work in our series. I mean, there was one person, uh, a listener who wrote in and said, that's not a worker, that's a criminal. And uh, I feel like, well, (laughs) that's what a lot of people do for their work, whether it's smuggling or informal work that is is basically legal in itself but doesn't pay taxes or doesn't announce itself to the authorities or prostitution or swindling and i think that in the the final roster that we produced which was 29 profiles we're probably a little bit shy on the illegal workers percentage wise percentage wise yeah Hmm. so let's move on to our next story um tell me more about the movie director lancelot I was really intrigued by the idea that the Nigerian film industry had suddenly zoomed to become the number three film industry in the world. It started from nowhere in the 1990s and then was uh, suddenly cranking out as many as a thousand titles a year. So it seemed like, well, there's something really going on here and it's something really positive that's going on here. When I got there, I asked people in the entertainment industry whom I made contact with, uh, how can I get this guy? How can I get this guy? Because Lancelot... Imaswen is this really famous character there. And I, I absolutely lucked out. Somebody, I, I bumped into an actor who showed up at an audition for a TV show that I was attending. And he said, um, he said, oh, you're looking for Lancelot. I just came from where he's shooting. It's in this hotel. And so I zoomed over there. And Lancelot was reluctant to let me interfere with his work to sort of inconvenience him by, by doing a profile of him until I agreed to act in his movie, in the movie that he was shooting. His, his expression changed and he said, okay. Well, I don't want to, um, nothing against your acting abilities, but was he just desperate for actors or like, how, why did that, that turn the trick for him? The whole industry is so seat of the pants. It's every project presents different challenges. The power is constantly going out in Lagos. They can't find actors. The actors don't show up uh, when they call them. It's, it's just chaotic in more ways than I can possibly list. And I think when I wandered along, Lancelot felt like, hmm, maybe we can get some good publicity in America. And then also, uh, maybe this guy could become a a judge in the uh, movie that, uh, this dance movie that I'm doing. He had a position in mind for me when he saw me as the only white guy on the set. So he, uh, he softened up. Lancelot Odua Imasuan, movie director. Location, Nigeria. Income, about $10,000 per film. Dream, to build his own studio. Profile by John Miller. Let's go. Roll it! 
For Lancelot Odua Imaswen, it has been one of those days. He's in the basement of a hotel in Lagos in a hot little utility closet with about 20 people doing take after take after take, and it is not coming out right. The movie's called Let's Dance Again, sort of a Nigerian flash dance. In this scene, a woman from a rival dance group comes into our hero's dressing room just before the big contest and tries to psych him out. I've searched all the dressing rooms. But she's just not convincing, and Lancelot knows it. You want to be sarcastic? Powerfully built in shorts and a t-shirt, he steps out from behind the camera. The dynamite! Lancelot's one of Nigeria's best-known filmmakers. He started out on stage, though, and deep down, he's still an actor. Unfortunately, most of the people in this movie aren't, and you can tell it's driving him nuts. Lancelot's been pushing to make Nollywood more professional. In the middle of yet another take, it occurs to him to ask whether anyone here is a member of the Actors Guild. How many? Turns out only one person is. Is that true? And that's a problem. He summons the casting director. I go aware that there's nobody here that is a good member outside Portia. And Portia's only here because she won a contest on TV. It's a very, 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 very serious matter, and I will be in trouble. According to his contract, everyone in this movie is supposed to join the guild. Lancelot Imaswen has directed more than 150 movies, about one a month for the last 13 years, and every single one of them has been a struggle. Low budgets, lousy equipment, constant power cuts, all for about $10,000 a film. You can pretty much forget about royalties. With so much piracy, there's no way to track the sales. But on balance, Lancelot says, things are kind of awesome. We're so happy, we're so excited that now we have something to show the world. Our people are talented, our people are creative. They are making something out of nothing. I've personally been to about 31 countries in the world as a result of being a practitioner in Nollywood. Wherever I'm introduced, they know me, they know my works. Africans, wherever they are traveling to, wherever they are in the world, they must go with copies of the film. That is their link home. So we're in a, a housing project where we're supposed to shoot today, and some of the talent has not shown up. It's been a couple of hours just sitting around, and then, uh, Lancelot just got a telephone call from one of the financiers, which uh, upset Lancelot quite a bit, which is putting it somewhat mildly. He's been on the cell phone ever since. What's going on? What's happening? <laughs> Part of production always, everywhere in the world. We're just re-strategizing. While Lancelot re-strategizes, I wander over to talk to Desmond Elliott, the romantic lead in this movie. He's suddenly become an international movie star, and he is loving it. Washington is crazy, because we have lots, we have concentration of Africans. Houston is another, New York, Brooklyn, Queens, Baltimore, Africa. I can't even walk around the streets in Africa. It's crazy. I am like the Denzel of, of Africa. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Lancelot has told me he'd like to be Africa's Richard Attenborough, a great actor who went on to direct historical epics like Gandhi and A Bridge Too Far. He'd also like to win an Oscar. If he does, he says it'll probably be for a movie in his native language, Edo, 
and not for a mass-market Nollywood video. But first, he's got to finish this one, and it seems like nobody, not the backers, the actors, the crew, is nearly as invested as he is. It can be very frustrating. They don't even know why they are there. They have other things in their, on their minds. So you need to scream and scream and scream and scream. The next day, Lancelot's in Desmond Elliott's Dodge Durango, heading up a little convoy, looking for a place to shoot. Nollywood doesn't do sets. Everything's shot on location. Finally, we stop at a car wash on a busy street in Lagos. The camera crew and actors jump out of their vehicles, and Lancelot and company take the place over. It's a scene where the dancers wash cars to raise money for costumes. Lancelot is kinetic. In long shorts and a blue basketball jersey, he dances with the actors, follows the cameraman into the street, shouts at passing traffic. It's work, but he is clearly having a blast. This is actually a pretty posh production with a budget of around $60,000. That's about three times what most movies here cost. Like almost all Nollywood films, melodramas, gangster movies, monster movies, this one at root is a morality tale. In Nollywood, hard work pays off, and the bad guys never win. That's a point Lancelot makes over and over when he talks to Westerners. Because the Western media has had a perpetual propaganda against Africa. What they tell the world about Africa is poverty, is sickness, diseases. So through the Nigerian films, we tell our stories by ourselves, for ourselves. And our people have come to fall in love with this. The climax of Let's Dance Again takes place back in the hotel where we started. The scene was actually shot on my first day in Lagos. The airline had lost my luggage. I wasn't wearing socks and I had a big black stain on my shirt. Not exactly the way I would have planned my Nollywood debut, but Lancelot insisted. Where are the judges? Where are the writing materials? So it looks like I've been pressed into service as a judge in the great dance contest. I sit at a little table next to the stage and through multiple takes and one amusingly timed power failure, I try to look judgmental. Judges, I hope we are ready with the results. Lancelot Imaswen says this movie is a good metaphor for Nollywood. That's why he was attracted to it in the first place. It's about a group of people, all down on their luck, who come together to compete for fame and glory. They confront their demons, dig deep within themselves, and ultimately... Who do you think will win? Well... I don't want to wreck the ending. Lancelot Odua Imasuin, movie director by John Miller. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we're listening to stories from the Homeland's production series about working. And we're talking with Jonathan Miller, the executive producer of the series. Next up, an oil worker in Canada who probably has one of the longest commutes in the world. Blair Gent, oil worker. Location, Canada. 
Income, $6,000 per month. Commute, 3,000 miles. Dream, to work closer to home. Profile by Chris Brooks. Brody. Hmm? Can I get up my baby? Why? It's 2.30 in the morning when 10-year-old Brody Gent opens his eyes okay. to see his father with his bag packed, ready to drive to the airport. All right, baby. Let's go. Brody lives with his parents in Harbor Mill, Newfoundland, a tiny community of just 182 souls tucked into the Atlantic coast of Canada. But his dad is going to work on the other side of the continent. I'm Blair Gent, industrial mechanic. With chronic unemployment in Harbor Mill, this quiet 39-year-old commutes all the way to Alberta, 3,000 miles away. It's not so bad if you're young and got no family, but uh, when you're tied down and got to pay the bills. Blair's wife, Pam, and Brody slip in beside him for the three-hour drive up the coast to the airport, keeping their eyes peeled for any moose that might suddenly dart out of the blackness and cross the highway. After tonight, the family won't be together again for nearly two months. Anybody who works in an oil patch, it's hard on the family. There's lots of divorces. And three or four years ago, we were working just outside Calgary, and out of like maybe 50 guys, I think I was the only one left married. Would you think of moving the family up to Fort McMurray? Not a chance. Now, uh, you know, scenario of every boom town, it's, it's hard and fast, and there's a lot of hard elements, and family life is way better down here. If you can call it family life, last year, Blair was away for six months straight. Right now, he's on a six and two rotation. Six weeks in Alberta, two home with Brody and Pam. Oprah had on it for optimum health, you need to have sex 200 times a year. <laughs> He's only home. <laughs> 40 days a year. So we're going to die early. Okay. okay. A quick curbside goodbye at the airport at 4 a.m. and Blair steps onto his flight to Fort McMurray. Eight hours from now and he'll start his day installing instrumentation controls on the oil sands site the maze of remote sensing transmitters that monitor things like pressure and flow rate for the oil extraction process. You got everything sure? His nights will be a bunk in a company-owned work camp. Pam and Brody start their long drive back to Harbor Mill in the dark. Theirs is the flip side of Blair's long-distance job, making the family function while he's away. It's Pam Gent's work, and it starts now. What? What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. What is it? Well, you know, just dropping your dad off. Kind of sad, don't you think? You guess. Back in Harbor Mill, Pam runs this small grocery store. It's the only store in town, but a tiny community with only 77 mailboxes can't give them enough business to make ends meet. There's a lot of hope that the store will do better, so there won't be as much of a need for him to work away. But I mean, right now, economically, we do need that money. There's kind of a sad irony running underneath this work situation that Pam and Blair find themselves in. Up until three years ago, they both had dream jobs in Toronto, working nine to five, and the family was together every night. Financially, it couldn't have been better. We had the big house and the big mortgage and the two vehicles. But then, a couple of things happened. Back in Harbor Mill, Pam's grandmother died and left her house. And then, one day in Toronto. I came home from work, you know, picked my son up from uh, daycare, uh, started supper, and on the news, it had uh, this little girl was missing off a street, and this wasn't too far from where we lived. 
even though I could see and hear my son outside playing from my kitchen, mm. I just instinctively went in and grabbed him and brought him in and locked the door. And that was the very first time that I felt fear. And then the news just got worse. The next day they found her body parts. She had been, it was, it was, it was horrible. So then we just made plans. We put the house on the market and, uh, and we were coming home. Home to this little fishing village with a beach and a perfect swimming hole, a great place to bring kids up in. But, but Blair has to work away. We keep thinking that the work away is a temporary thing, but this has been going on now since 2004 for us. The Alberta time zone is three and a half hours away, so the family stays in touch through voice messaging and phone calls in the wee hours when Blair's back in his bunk. Hi Blair, it's me. I just got home. Give me a call if you get back, okay? Bye. On Father's Day, it's 5 a.m. in Alberta. Hello? Hello, boy. Hey, Dad. How are you doing? Okay. Don't forget that you gotta wish him. Happy Father's Day, Dad. <laughs> Thank you. Half asleep phone conversations like this are often what the father son relationship consists of while Blair's away. Pam works hard to make up for it. I'm not going to pretend today's not Father's Day. If Blair was here, we'd probably do a beach bonfire. We'd have scallops. Scallops is Blair's favorite meal. We're doing all those things because I wanted to make sure that it's a special day for Brody and that he doesn't feel lost because one of his little friends, his father came home on his eight-day rotation and it happens to be here today for Father's Day, and that's Brody's best friend. Here, I'll want you to wash your hair tonight. I did last night. Thanks for your help. You're really a big help. So where do you think Dad is? Tell me where the province is. Alberta. Yeah, and what city? I don't know. Fort McMurray. I've been with Blair since I was 16 years old. And the very first time that we lived together was on a single bed. And that single bed had room enough for two more people. We were that close. And that's how we slept for a lot of years, that close. When Blair started going away, you get used to sleeping on your own. And now when he comes home, he has a spare bed and he goes out there. And actually, it was kind of funny this time home. One of the first things he said to me was, oh, it's so nice to have my bed back. His bed is the spare bed. Message marked urgent. Hi, it's me. Hope I'm doing well. Give me a call later, okay? All right. Bye-bye. End of message. So I, I don't know. By the time we get content with having him back, he'll be gone. We'll be discontent with him gone for the first little time. Just as we get content again, he comes home, and then I have to accept him, and he has to accept me, and everything is jungled up, and and then you, the cycle starts all over again. It starts over again at airport arrivals, with Pam dolled up in a low-cut sweater, holding a cup of takeout coffee for Blair. <laughs> After an eight-hour flight, Blair appears in a fresh-pressed shirt, clean-shaven, smelling of aftershave. This must be your come-home shirt, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one, yeah. It's the one clean. The little things that show how much they welcome this part of the cycle. And Blair will be home long enough to paint the porch and fix the vacuum cleaner and maybe go fishing with his son. And then Pam will drive him back to the airport and they'll each head back to their two separate worlds, home and work. 
pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that should fit together, but don't. Did you, you never called me today. I thought you were going to call me. It was direct flight, eight hours. You said Calgary, I'm Yeah, for 15 minutes, and then come on. Blair Gent, Oil Worker, by Chris Brooks. And this is something that is so universal. I mean, this has been true for forever, that people travel to where the jobs are. But of course, more now in this, um, in this age of, of jet travel and so on, and fairly, fairly cheap travel, people are moving all over the world. And such an extraordinarily high number of uh, proportion of the people who are working are working very far from what they consider to be their home. And every single one of those people uh, whether it's a Filipina nurse working in Saudi Arabia or a Mexican farm worker working in California or, uh, or a Cuban doctor working in Africa, there is drama and deep, deep stuff going on. I mean, it is such a hardship, and people have these really interesting ways of coping. Separation is just such an important part of, of our uh, work experience. Which sort of brings us to our next story, of the jet-setting French chocolate taster. The chocolate taster assignment, clearly one of the most difficult I've ever had to to take, <laughs> uh, to go down to Ecuador to taste fine chocolate for four days. Yeah, boo-hoo. <laughs> you know, my idea was, like, what would be the best job in the world? And, I mean, I guess we all probably have our ideas of that. But I think that going around the world first class and staying in fancy hotels and tasting chocolate would be on a lot of people's lists. Oh, yeah. Chloe Dutra-Roussel, chocolate taster. Home, France. Day rate, 1,500 euros. Consumes about one pound of chocolate per day. Profile by John Miller. My name is Chloe Dutra-Roussel. I am what you call an international chocolate expert. I am an expert in tasting chocolate. I have also followed very closely the international trends because there is a lot of politics, there is a lot of cross-influences. So this is kind of information I can provide to companies what areas they should invest on or what products they should launch. I am very lucky that I was born with a very acute nose. For the tasting of chocolate is one of my uh, biggest advantage. But having a sharp nose has also a lot of disadvantages. For example, if I am in a plane and the person three seats away has been sweating too strong (laughs) or ate garlic, I need to change seat. We are now in an old plantation. The trees are between 25 and 30 years old. I arrived in Ecuador two days ago, and I had spent just before 11 days in a tour in Asia, moving from a taxi hotel, airport, restaurant, taxi hotel, airport, restaurant. And then I spent 24 hours in Paris. It was mainly to change suitcase. And I am here for a three-day workshop organized by an association of cacao exporters that have the intention to develop many chocolate brands and not just export cacao. People tell me often that I have the best job in the world because I travel so much and I eat chocolate for free. Well, first, there is not a free lunch, I think you say in, in English, because the time I spend around chocolate is a time I don't spend uh, learning music, drinking with friends. It would be much more simple for me to just go and buy chocolate and enjoy life. 
we are in the terrace outside the hotel where is hosted the conference and we have uh, only 10 minutes to have lunch. When I was 14, I started to taste chocolate to find the best pleasure out of my pocket money. And I realized that when I was concentrating into the tasting of one chocolate, I felt the complexity, the intensity, and that it was much more interesting than watching TV. I have applied this methodology of listening my body to listening to my needs for rest or where I want to go for holiday or if I want to be with this person or not. The more you do things that are not in tune with you, not only is a waste of time, but you also harm yourself. And one of the characteristics of our society is that we hurt ourselves and then we spend time and money trying to heal what we manage to hurt. There is a chocolate revolution going on. It started with the revival of dark chocolate as a gourmet food and uh, many new brands selling fine chocolate. And all these companies try the same tricks. They use the same words, they tell the same stories to sell very different products. At the moment for a consumer, it is almost impossible to get the truth. Many companies approach me and they ask me to write a few nice words about their products so they can publish nice words and my name would be a seal of quality. These things I refuse. When I do chocolate tasting, I usually prepare a glass of warm water because the cocoa butter sticks to the mouth and the warm water will dissolve the cocoa butter and really clean much better the palate. So now I'm going to taste another chocolate. I know the chocolate, it's a good friend. So it's little ovals that are all scratching between themselves so they don't look very sexy. I'm very happy nobody's tempted and only me. When I look at it closely, I can see in the cut that there is no bubbles or particles so you can already see it with your own eyes that it has been properly tempered. Now I'm going to approach it from my ear and this is a quite sharp snap, so it's again a proof that it has been properly tempered. And now I'm going to smell. It has some fruit notes. It's always hard for people to understand that you can feel fruits in a chocolate. Well, when you are exploring the taste, the aromas of fine chocolate, you need to explore what we call the aromatic families, floral, fruit, vegetal. It's exactly the same families that are analyzed in the world of perfume, tea, coffee, olive oil. So we all use the same vocabulary. So now I'm going to taste. After 10 seconds of cutting the chocolate into small pieces, you just stop any movement with the mouth, close your eyes and concentrate. Don't swallow. It should melt in such a harmony with the body that you will not even notice it is melting. It's not something that you will be conscious of. The first thing you feel is not the aromas, but more an acidity. You have like sparkles on the side of the tongue. And once the acidity tempers, appear some red fruit nodes. The red fruit nodes are very powerful and at the same time elegant and light and they last very long. It's a good sign for a chocolate. 
So this chocolate is complex, intense, elegant, with no aggressivity, but a very strong personality. The chocolate we just had is the Manjari from Varona. Varona has another chocolate called Guanaja. And I like to describe the difference between Manjari and uh, Guanaja. Like if you close your eyes and you imagine a handsome man dressed up with a suit. I'm a woman, so I always refer to a man. In the case of the Guanaja, it would be a kind of Cheruti suit, black with white lines, uh, very elegant. And the Manjari would be the same handsome man, but with a purple suit from Kenzo and a pink tie. Also very handsome, very elegant, but a bit eccentric. A lot of people ask me, what is your favorite chocolate? Of course I have my favorites, everybody has its favorites. It is quite subjective. The type of chocolate you like is not only related to the quality of the chocolate, but also to your past. Everyone should keep in a little box of treasures, not a physical box, but in our head, their favorite chocolate bar when we were a child, because the memories are even more powerful on the taste than reality sometimes. Chloe Dutra-Roussel, Chocolate Taster, by John Miller. You're listening to ReSound. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today on the show, profiles of workers from all around the world. Blue-collar, white-collar, legal, not legal, in the U.S. and abroad. Here's Jonathan Miller, the executive producer of The Working Series. Several of the stories in this or the profiles in this series have to do with people who are related to us here in America pretty indirectly through two or three degrees or four or five degrees of separation. Romulo, the lobster diver, is really directly related to us. Here's a guy whose work is to go out on these incredibly crowded boats uh, with people, many of whom or most of whom are high on drugs, dive to the bottom of the seafloor, grab as many lobsters as he possibly can, bring them up to the surface so that they can be sold to chain restaurants in the United States. And this is where our lobster tales come from. Romulo Graham, lobster diver. Location, Honduras. Income, 3000 to $6,000 per year. Dream, to find a safer job. Profile by Claudine Lamonaco. On land, Romulo Graham is a crippled man. His knees tremble when he walks and he looks like he might crumple with every step. But in water, he says he is perfect, strong, and able to work. For the last 30 years, Grandma's made his living diving, more than 100 feet deep, down to the floor of the Caribbean, stalking lobster. In places like Maine and Nova Scotia, lobsters are caught in traps. But where Romulo Graham lives, on the Mosquito Coast in Honduras, it's cheaper to use divers than it is to use traps. Cheaper, but a lot more dangerous. 20 years ago, Graham was diving at around 120 feet when things went wrong. The day of my accident, I wanted to catch more lobster than anybody else. I used a lot of tanks that day, 16 tanks. In those days, we didn't have any training. The way these guys dive, that's more than six hours at depth. U.S. diving experts say that about an hour split between three to four dives would be safe. But Graham's story is common here, and you can see the consequences. Walk through Graham's village, 
or any village along the Mosquito Coast. And if you didn't know better, you'd think there'd been a war here. Beneath the towering mango trees and coconut palms, men move along the dirt paths on crutches or in wheelchairs. Family members pull quadriplegics on planks with wheels. All of them were injured diving. Graham's own problem started as a sharp pain in his ribs when he came up from his 16th dive. Within a half hour, he was completely paralyzed. I could only move my head and my eyes were looking around, but I couldn't speak and my tongue couldn't move. He couldn't breathe and passed out. He came to at a clinic not far from his village. There was a doctor there, and he said, Oh, my son, you can't walk anymore. You are paralyzed. And I began to think, I'm so young, and now I'm paralyzed? I have three girls to look over. My God, if I die, who's going to take care of these three little girls? Graham needed a decompression chamber, but the nearest one was on the Cayman Islands, and the boat captain wasn't going to pay for that. Graham spent months in bed, Several times a day, his wife would exercise his fingers, toes, and legs. After nine months, he got out of bed with crutches. Finally, he threw away the crutches. I'd fall on the ground all the time, but I wasn't ashamed. I'd get up and walk again. People would say, you're falling in the streets, why don't you stay at home? And I would tell them, no. Sure, I fall, but it's not a problem. Graham tried farming for a couple of years, but his kids would often go hungry. His wife begged him not to go back to sea. If you die, she said, then what good will you be? I said, look, wife, there is no other way I can support you and our family. I have to go out and dive. And I went out. My wife was crying, but I went and it was okay. Graham still dives but he's trying to save others from the injuries that he suffered. Today, he's out on a small boat, teaching a handful of mosquito Indians the basics of diver safety. Graham's one of about a dozen lobster divers certified this spring as teachers by the Honduran Navy. It's the first systematic attempt to train the country's divers. Diving's the only industry on the Mosquito Coast. Aggressive divers can earn up to $6,000 in a six-month season. Graham has the men review their charts to see how long they can dive and check their equipment to make sure it works. Scuba gear here is outdated and often malfunctions. Divers have no depth gauges and no way of knowing how much air they have left. During lobster season, these guys will go out for two weeks at a time on boats crammed with as many as 100 men. The lobster stocks are so depleted here that every year the divers have to go deeper. Graham tells his students they need to slow down. You can't use more than eight tanks a day because you'll get too much nitrogen in your system. One by one, the men put on their fins and masks and jump into the water. They'll go down 90 feet, then practice coming up slowly and safely. Graham is trying to limit the time these men scramble for lobster on the sea floor. Typically, divers stay on the bottom until they run out of air, then push off and shoot up to the surface. That's when they get what's known as the bends. It's like when you open a Coke can and bubbles rush to the top. 
Only with humans, it's nitrogen bubbles that burst into muscles and the bloodstream, causing joint pain, paralysis, or death. When divers have a nitrogen attack, a decompression chamber can help. Graham takes me to a nearby clinic with three chambers that were installed in the 90s. Trouble is, the chambers don't work. Inside, walls are crumbling. Bats squeak in the rafters, and everything, including the large tubular chambers, is covered in guano. We have to step over a dead bat to get to the largest chamber. Aurelia Ponce, who heads the clinic, says there hasn't been any money or trained doctors to run the chambers for the last four years. Every year when the season starts, many divers come here, poor guys, and they die because there's no chamber. If we could get them into chambers, they would recover. Before we leave, the doctor tells Graham he shouldn't be diving. He's still got too much nitrogen in his system. He's risking his life every time he goes under. It's the same with all injured divers. Of the men on Graham's training boat, half have been seriously injured from nitrogen sickness. One nearly died from a brain embolism. Another, like Graham, walks with a permanent limp. But as soon as they finish the training, Graham and his fellow divers will all head to the seafloor to catch as many lobsters as they can. Romulo Graham, Lobster Diver, by Claudine Lamonaco. Do you want people to come away from this with more information, more compassion, a new awareness, all of the above? What would your ideal kind of effect of the series be? What I hope people who hear these stories come away with is a greater sense of being a part of something larger than themselves. And I guess I mean that in two different ways. One, in that we are all part of this huge human family. We go through many of the same experiences, and while one person might be going off to a tannery in Pakistan and another person might be going off to to design vacuum cleaners, that there's an awful lot that we have in common with one another. And the second thing is to help people, sort of to remind people of how their lives in this day and age are connected uh, to other people in often really direct ways. We're affected by what happens on the other side of the planet. What we do affects people on the other side of the planet, very real people with families and histories and quirks and that we have some responsibility because of that. But I don't want to tell people what the responsibility is. But we are connected, and, and it can't hurt to, to be reminded of that. Lao Wang, express mail driver. Location, China. Income, $55 per week. Dream, to support his daughter's dreams. Profile by Sandy Tolan. Every morning, Lao Wang climbs a ladder to the tin roof of his simple brick home. Then he opens the door to a small cage, crouches low, and begins shooing out his birds. When I wake up every morning, the first thing I do is release my pigeons. 
It signals to the birds that they can fly now, high up to the sky. <laughs> Mr. Wong's birds fly together, joining other flocks whose keepers, just for the pleasure of the sound, have adorned them with bamboo whistles. Now Mr. Wong watches his rise in ever higher circles above his ancient Beijing neighborhood called Ahutong. I always feel that I like to live in Ahutong rather than the modern apartment building. Because in the apartment building, nobody knows you and will talk to you, even the neighbors. From this rooftop, Mr. Wong looks upon the waves of tiled roofs, low-slung buildings clustered together, armies of cyclists navigating narrow alleys, vendors calling out over walls of ancient courtyards. But the place is not so insular as it seems. I'm a postman for EMS, Chinese Express Mail. Every Monday through Friday, Lao Wong gets on his bicycle and rides out of his beloved hutong into the wall of sound known as modern Beijing. Seven, eight, nine... It's mid-afternoon now, and Mr. Wong is sifting through a leaning tower of packages, mostly documents. Seventeen, eighteen, nineteen... He's a carrier pigeon for the 21st century. Mr. Wong's work is all about carrying messages. These ones in tightly wrapped packages bound from Beijing to more than 100 countries. USA, Hong Kong, France. Now, does Mr. Wong ever wonder what's in these packages, where they're going, why, and what's the big rush? No, I never think about that. <laughs> Mr. Wong shifts into gear now, easing his green express mail van into the flotsam of Beijing traffic, a speck in a vast river of commerce. Just look at the cars on the roads of Beijing. Everybody's eager to come to live in Beijing. The fact is, he's like a lot of us, dare I say hundreds of millions of us around the world. Mr. Wong works to live. He doesn't want to know more about the quarter million or more packages he's picked up in the last dozen years, those urgent documents, factory samples, or packages that must be there the next day. For Mr. Wong, it's just a job. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make some money. And so Mr. Wong makes his rounds from a little corner of Beijing his company has carved up for him. He designs his own routes and picks up 100, sometimes 200 packages a day. Could you please tell the sender of this mail he didn't package it in the right way, and now we have to redo it? And if he's thinking not so much about the destination of the packages, he is thinking how far they might take his young daughter. All done for today. I'm leaving. See you next Monday. Bye-bye. And now, the van parked at the post office, Mr. Wong pedals back in time, with one little stop along the way. I like KFC better Chinese food. And that is Wang Zheng, Mr. Wong's only child, the driving force of his labors. Shy and round-faced, Wang Zheng is 12. She's in pigtails and pink sneakers, waiting in line at the KFC to order her nuggets. 
Mr. Wong stands beside her, beaming as she tries out her English. She prefers KFC over Chinese food, though she says it's not her favorite. I like McDonald's better. Every time Mr. Wong takes Wang Zheng here, on his salary of $55 a week, it's going to cost him half a day's pay. And that's just for the chicken. Wang Zheng's tastes run to shiny things, like CDs of Chinese pop stars. Things her dad never could have imagined back in the days of the Cultural Revolution. Because you know, now the children spend more than the adults. Sometimes when they come here with Wang Zheng's mom and grandma, Mr. Wang will just wait outside, smoking a cigarette. He says he feels out of place here. He looks oddly at his fries, then at me. He has a question. Is that true that in America, the people live separately and never care about their neighbors? Because that's starting to happen here, Mr. Wong says. Hutongs are falling before the wrecking ball, and he no longer knows all his neighbors. In fact, these days, Mr. Wong lives only part-time in the Hutong. The family sleeps in a modern apartment across town. So Wang Zheng can have her own room, chat with her friends online, and get a competitive edge in her studies. Nowadays, Mr. Wong says, it's all about getting ahead. Why else would he spend so much time hauling packages through traffic? Next morning, Mr. Wong is back at the pigeon coop in his old hutong, ready for another day in the express mail van. He's already fed his birds and released them. Now, he's calling them home. Lao Wong, Express Mail Driver, by Sandy Tolan. All of the stories you heard in the last hour were from the Working Series by Homelands Productions. There are 29 of them in all, and they originally aired on Marketplace. To find a link to the Homelands website, visit thirdcoastfestival.org and click on ReSound. ReSound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. Gwen Maxi, radio host. Location, Chicago, Illinois. Dream, to be a voiceover artist in a cartoon. Consumes about as much chocolate as a professional chocolate taster. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear hundreds of outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Dojo, a full-service digital agency, on the web at doejo.com. Dojo, we fuel ideas that grow. Support also comes from Busy Beaver Button Company, your source for custom buttons, magnets, and bottle openers. All products proudly made in Chicago. Order online at busybeaver.net. The Third Coast Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Boeing Company Charitable Trust, the Agadino Foundation, and the Menaki Foundation. This program is partially supported by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. 
ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>